this is Visidia, the source for inclusive, actionable dialogue on funding and creating a better world. If you're building the future, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Skylar Cole. Before we start the show, I'd like to share that if you're listening to the audio podcast, we're also on YouTube. You can watch this episode there as well as check out video exclusive content. If you're already watching from YouTube, thank you. I'm so excited to introduce today's guest, Ilse Calderon. Ilse is a senior associate at OVO Fund. She's been at OVO for the past two and a half years and was previously at Silicon Valley Bank doing venture debt. OVO Fund is a pre-seed fund based in the Bay Area where they'd like to invest 250 to 500K in the earliest of founders, i.e. pre-product, pre-revenue, pre-product market fit, etc. across capital efficient sectors. Let's get started with our conversation with Ilse. Ilse, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Skylar. Awesome. So to start, uh, can you share your background and what initially sparked your interest in entrepreneurship? Yeah, absolutely. So a little bit about myself. I... I'm originally from Mexico. I spent the first 10 years of my life there. And then when I was 10, my parents decided that it was a really good idea for my sisters and I to grow up in the United States. And really their goal for us was always to go to higher education and college and university here in the United States. And so, you know, they thought that the best way to do that would be to um, do high school here. And so that's when my family moved to Houston, Texas. And I was there from when I was 10 until I went off to college, um, which was the first time when I went to California, when I went to Stanford. Um, But even before then, I did take a gap year between college and high school and studied abroad in France. And it was through this Rotary program that really was focused on sort of like a cultural experience. And so I sort of did a fifth year of high school there where the focus was not so much the grades, but it was more about learning the language and um, assimilating with the host families that I lived there with. And so that was a phenomenal experience. I always say that's sort of what like made me go from being like a shyer person to someone that was like more bold and like more, um, lively and like um, willing to talk to strangers and that sort of thing. And so that was like the best thing that could have happened to me, especially right before coming to college. Um, And so then I started at Stanford really um, never having been to California before. And, you know, it was really um, shocking to me and surprising in the best of ways. I loved sort of how many resources Stanford has and really the ability to take classes in so many different domains because I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to study when I went to Stanford. I sort of assumed that I would do business. Um, But really, you know, you probably know this from going there too, but like Stanford doesn't really have an undergrad business degree, although they have a phenomenal business school right next to them, right? Um, And so really what I started doing was just taking classes out of interest. And some of those classes were definitely more business leaning. And the really cool thing that maybe you can allude to as well as the fact that since it is right in the middle of Silicon Valley, a lot of the classes would pair you up with a startup in the area, whether it was more early stage or later stage. And really, you know, instead of having a midterm and an exam, your project for the class was to help the startup um, 
in a different capacity. Um, so like one I remember is uh, Relate IQ, which, you know, it's customer relationship management. Um, now it's Salesforce IQ because Salesforce bought it. But that was really like one of my early projects um, that I had as part of a class there. And so all of that is just to say that I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I was at Stanford, just started taking classes out of interest and ultimately ended up majoring in a very Stanford specific major, which is science, technology and society. And it's crazy because like I have a lot of friends that did that major too. And um, the breadth of like industry that you can go into is, is quite broad. Um, and so when I graduated, I did your sort of typical recent grad rotational program at Silicon Valley Bank, which is right next to Stanford, literally in Palo Alto. <laughs> and it was all on the venture debt side. So not necessarily on the equity side of startup financing, which is all venture capital is, um, but it was a really good way to sort of get a broad level and perspective on the startup ecosystem and um, the financing side of things. So I was there for about 10 months and the program was supposed to be a year and a half and then they would sort of place you in your permanent team. But I left before then because I uh, really wanted to go into venture and the right opportunity came with Ovo. The partner also went to Stanford. So we were mutually connected and really, you know, started having a lot of conversations. Ovo was at the point where they had just closed their second fund. Um, and the partner, Eric, really wanted to bring someone on board to help him deploy the capital. And to me, that seemed like a dream role at the time. And, you know, one of the really exciting parts for me at that time was that I really did have the ability to take on a lot of responsibilities that maybe weren't so common for the point in my career where I was, which was really early. I mean, I kind of think still am, but um, yeah. And like one thing that was really important for me was also having like um, a mentor that um could that was interested in my career growth because as you might know venture capital is super unstructured roles vary so so much no one's path is really linear um and so really working alongside a partner that was going to be invested in my growth was important for me um and so now i've been at ovo for almost three years in january of next year and it's been a really exciting process um, has definitely changed since I first joined, but um, I'm excited to take more responsibilities and also happy to talk more about that uh, yeah. later on. Yeah, definitely. No, I, I want to hop into that. Can you share some of OVO's uh, or OVO's investment thesis? Yeah. So OVO, we are a very, very early stage fund. And I know nowadays a lot of funds like to say, oh, we're really early stage, uh, but which really are. Um, like we invest uh, pre pre everything pre real product market fit absolutely uh, pre real revenue um, honestly a lot of the times it's also pre launch and so that being said we place a lot of the emphasis and focus on the founder and founder market fit and so we want the founder to be the main reason 99% of the reason why we make the investment founder or founders um, but it is sector agnostic. I don't necessarily think it makes sense to be sector specific this early on because, you know, ideas change. One interesting thing for OVO is that um, our best investments have been in companies that look very different today than they did when we made that initial investment. So it kind of all goes back to team. So we want to be involved early, um, idea stage truly. And we also have like a couple programs and initiatives around 
um, building relationships with those super early founders. I wouldn't even call them founders at that point, more like aspiring founders tinkering on the side while working their full-time job, maybe. Nice. I love that. And so what do you look for in these aspiring founders since uh, you're yeah. so early and it's so, it hinges so much on, on the people, really? Yeah, that is a really great question. And I think that like the true answer is it depends, but that's definitely not a good answer. But what I can say is that um, passion is important. Everyone talked about it and I'm not trying to minimize it, but one thing that is equally important, if not more, is the subject matter expertise that the founder or the founders have in the space. So what I tell founders is ideally you should do something that's at the intersection of two things. One, your passion, what you want to wake up thinking about. And then the other thing is, are you good at that? It's sort of this question of why do you think you were uniquely put here to solve this problem? It's sort of the question of like, why do you want to spend the next decade or more of your life going after this problem? Because, you know, as you know, um, the entrepreneurial journey is really difficult and, you know, you're choosing one of the most difficult jobs ever. And so in days when things are going bad, you got to rely on the bigger vision and you seeing that vision as a founder. Absolutely. Absolutely. So along with that, what is your approach to working with these very early aspiring founders? Yeah, it varies depending on the founder. So about 50% of our founders are first-time founders, and then the other 50% are serial entrepreneurs. So in terms of how we work with them, it depends. And then the other component is whether they're solo founders as opposed to dual founders. For some reason, I end up spending more time with solo founders. And it's kind of interesting because it's sort of this like half therapist, half business partner, or actually a third therapist, a third business partner, a third brainstorming partner um, person. And it really depends on what the founder is going through. But what I find that I don't want to belittle is that it's equally as important to be that founder's cheerleader, especially if they're a solo founder, because they're, they're really looking for at you for that. Um, especially because sometimes like the founder investor relationship can be biased. We want to encourage founders to be as transparent with us as they feel comfortable being. And so that really involves having built those relationships and like investing in the relationship apart from investing in the founder's business you know, at the end of the day, we're investing in people. So before a founder can build a successful business, like we want to make sure that they're okay, right? Otherwise their business is not going to be okay. And so a really prime example of this is, um, you know, back in March, April, when California went into lockdown and um, shit hit the fan, literally. <laughs> um, it was really important for us to, you know, talk to the founders more personally and just figure out uh, what they wanted to do, what their concerns were, and how we could provide help and resources around those concerns that they were having. And I'm wondering, too, at that time, since these founders or aspiring founders are so early on their journey, um, did you see many founders kind of say, maybe not right now? Or was there a lot of perseverance, I guess, resilience through uh, that initial yeah. time period? Yeah. I want to say for the most part, it was more perseverance that I saw. 
I think it was definitely still is a really interesting time to sort of figure out who the really strongest founders are. And in a way, I kind of think right now is the best time to start a company, given the right sectors involved. Um, but one thing that I was really impressed with some of our founders is that they truly were able to take the changing economic conditions, the changing trends. And if they were in a business that was maybe not so COVID friendly, what they were doing to pivot, right? Um, and it's interesting because like sometimes these pivots look very different than the initial idea, but like the way I like to think about it is especially for more consumer facing businesses, they are not necessarily in the business of selling their customers XYZ product. They're in the business of making their customers happy through selling products A, X, Y, Z. So if that needs to change, then at the core, it's still, what are the pain points of my customer? And are those changing? Probably with COVID. So how can I integrate myself in that solution loop? That's an awesome way to put it. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so um, you mentioned this earlier, but OvoFund works, uh, it's really involved kind of different programs uh, and has different programs outside of main fund. Can you share a little bit about those? Absolutely, Skylar. Um, we want to build relationships with founders before they're actually founders. I kind of iterated on this um, initially. And what that really means is how do we make sure we are the first call when someone wants to become a founder or when someone says, okay, I spent the last few months of my life thinking about this problem. I've done some initial customer discovery and now I'm going to go at it. And like, I decided that I want to build a business around this. Maybe they're not even at the point where they decide, oh, I want to raise venture, right? Or, or I want to raise funds at all, but we sort of want to be that first call. And so some of the programs that we have are really geared towards um, building those relationships because I can't iterate how important like this is for better or for worse, our relationship driven business. Um, but that being said, like we're realistic, we're a small fund, we're only two people. And so that really means prioritizing and picking what's gonna be our strong suits when it comes to programming. And so one of the programs that um, I brought on is the Campus Ambassador Program, which is where we target students at certain universities and they're sort of our eyes and ears on campus from an entrepreneurial standpoint. So the idea there is that an MIT student is going to be closer to his or her peers a lot more than I will ever be. So I want to find that person or those few people that don't necessarily have to be technical, to be honest, but that um, are social by nature and just sort of always know what their peers are working on. So to be honest, for the right person, it's a great gig because it doesn't even feel like real work and yet they're getting paid. Um, and it's like an awesome opportunity to, um, you know, provide their, because we view them as like the first filter. Um, so that's one program. And then another one, uh, which we internally call IP Create, um, it's really more geared towards technical people that maybe want to be founders. So think about like your PhDs, your grad students, um, even your professors, honestly, that have like decades of experience in some subject matter that's really niche. Um, the truth is, that, or there might be a right business application for that tech that they're probably like top 1% expert in. 
And so the idea is how can we find those aspiring founders and put the right resources behind them, mostly on the business side to help them commercialize their tech. Um, this is definitely something that takes a lot more work. So we can't do a lot of them, but uh, we at Ovo definitely think it's worth it. And, and like, I absolutely agree. Um, and then the other initiative that we have is the uh, Entrepreneur in Residence Program. And a lot of funds have this. And, you know, I talk to my peers and they definitely vary. But for us, it's essentially twofold. On the one side, it's a role where it's ideal for someone that knows they want to become a founder, but they haven't found full conviction for an idea that they want to fully pursue. And so they sort of hang out with us now remotely in an ideal world in our office in Palo Alto, uh, but they hang out and um, test ideas. We give, we connect them to people to um, do customer discovery and early hypothesis around the ideas that they're interested in. And then on the other side, they lend their skill set, whether it be on the product side or on the technical side to our existing portfolio companies that, you know, we're always trying to help in a variety of ways. Yeah, so those are some other programs. And I think that's really so important, especially with the first two programs you mentioned, bridging the gap between kind of students wanting to uh, pursue some type of entrepreneurial adventure, especially with PhD and graduate students, there's so many, I think, ideas and research that, you know, can, is already applicable or has a potential market, but kind of overcoming that research to, to industry uh, gap is, I just find really interesting. Those are amazing yeah. programs. That's a, that's a lot of work for two people. That's incredible. <laughs> I know. And that's what we kind of have to like pick and choose. Like, trust me, if I had, you know, more resources and more people, it would definitely be a lot more. Um, but like, I think at the end of the day, um, it, it's all about prioritizing. And that's when it comes to time, but also um, like what programs you institute or how you want to run the fund. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So now... I want to pivot and get into your thesis on the rise of the Hyperculture Lab next. I, I will link there. You've written amazing articles about them in TechCrunch and Forbes, and they'll all be linked in the episode. But let's let's dive in because I'm really excited to talk about this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to start, can you provide an overview of you know who is the Hypercultural Latinx? Yeah. So this topic is very near and dear to my heart because, like, at its core, I'm one of the 18 million hypercultural Latinx in the United States. And really what that term is meant to define is the U.S. Latino youth. The average age of a U.S. Latino is 28 years old, while their white counterpart is 42 years old. And this is a really important statistic because um, it means that they have, we have so many more prime years of spending. And it's crazy to think that some of the more traditional legacy companies are doing a terrible job of going after this audience. Um, for example, a couple of years ago, Walmart won the award for the U.S. voice of Hispanic marketing, which is crazy because like you think about people our age and like that's not aspirational. That's not like where we want to be, you know, spending our growing purchasing power, which, by the way, is another incredible statistic. It depends what source you quote, but it's anywhere from 1.7 trillion to 1.9 trillion. Um, and so that massive purchasing power really means that there should be more and more to solve the problems and the pain points of the US Hispanic, 
and more specifically the U.S. Hispanic youth because that's the future and that's the future of the United States and the economy and that's something that I strongly believe in. And so as it relates to my thesis, one thing that I've been doing and spending the last, the last year or so thinking about is, um, well, what are the pain points of this demographic and how can they best be solved? Because I really believe that there's going to be companies that pop up that solve these problems. I don't think it's going to be your already existing traditional companies. And I definitely think there's room for venture to be involved in companies that are going after this audience. Um, there's also a lot of other interesting statistics, but they sort of all revolved around our mobile obsession and just how much time we spend online compared to um, the white youth counterpart. We spend twice as much time on mobile. Uh, we're twice as likely to engage with ads. And really we belong to a very, very community driven community. And that means that once you have our trust, once you're a product or service or platform that caters to us and that we trust you, we're going to tell everyone about it. And that's really powerful. And so that's really where that hypothesis stems from. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of points I want to touch on. And so first, let's talk about, so what do corporations and brands get wrong about this population? Yeah, I think if you're a large corporation with the marketing budget, it's quite easy to just throw dollars at the problem and try to solve it. And really this sort of all just become publicity stunts, right? And, you know, most recently, earlier this year, Kmart had, I don't know if you saw, but like Kmart had an ad that um, was supposed to be geared around like Mother's Day and like getting the Latina children to buy stuff for their mother on Kmart. But really it like, it was a translation error and it, it was a very bad word in Spanish. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Um, and it's just crazy to think that a company that they would like not even check that correctly. And that's just like a small example. But um, I think part of the problem is just put frankly that the people making those decisions and the people in charge don't look like the people that they're targeting, which in this case was the U.S. Latino population. Um, and so I don't think it's going to be large companies that get it right. I also think that consumers are really, really smart and can see past that. So they can see past publicity stunts and they can see past um, like how authentic a brand is being about it. And I know, I know the word authenticity gets thrown around a lot, but I do think it's fairly, it's super, super important, especially for this hypercultural Latinx audience that I'm talking about because um, consumers are just getting smarter. They have more resources to, um, you know, check reviews, check information about products that um, you're going to need to do more than that. Absolutely. I mean, you would think someone could double check <laughs> for, for gamers. Yeah, I think, somebody, but, yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think like sometimes that's just the easiest thing for brands to do, sort of like translate all their English marketing into Spanish marketing. But I think in doing that, you miss out a lot on the cultural aspects of yeah. um, targeting the Hispanic audience. Yeah, and just about language, there's so much that's cultural besides the words. Uh, absolutely. In Spanish and French, absolutely. Japanese. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then the other thing with like um, Spanish, the Spanish speaking audience is that it's so nuanced, right? So for example, right. I'm Mexican American, but 
um, I definitely know there's a lot of nuances and differences between like my culture and my customs than there are with like someone that's like from Puerto Rico or from another area in Latin America or Spain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one other aspect of your thesis is on community and mm-hmm. I think just really undervaluing community. Uh, can you speak more on that? Yeah, um, I think for a lot of consumer startups, community, it has to be thrown somewhere in the deck, right? Like at least in my experience and what I see, it to be a slide. it's thrown somewhere <laughs> in the deck, right? It's a slide. Uh, and like, I totally get why. Um, but I think as it relates to the Hispanic community and the youthful Hispanic community, um, we are a very community-driven culture. And what that really means is that we buy products by far that are recommended by people in our community. To be honest, even if they're not the best of products. And the best example that I can probably think of is Herbalife, which I know it's controversial, um, but the reason I bring it up is because they are a massive company. They're a $5 billion company and 80% of their audience is Latino families, even though they are an American corporation. And the reason that is from my opinion and the research that I've done is because their biggest emphasis, their, their, where they get a gold star is really um, their marketing appeal. And what they really do is build sort of this, um, what I call army of social guys and, you know, have someone become the brand ambassador and then spread that product within their community. And that's worked massively well for them. Obviously, they also have like controversial because of like the whole pyramid scheme. But like, just take that aspect away. That's not the part that I'm trying to um, maximize here. But it's sort of like how powerful the army of social guides approach is. And that truly is what community is. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's like you said, it's really important to recognize the significance of uh, that, this aspect of Herbalife and show that, you know, even though perceptions have changed, it's been able to yeah, be aware of people to provide uh, over time. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But like now, Herbalife has become such a big company that like I kind of almost ca- categorize them in that like traditional dinosaur player, right? And then the other thing is that like I'm really the hyperculture Latinx community. I'm really talking about the next generation, the Gen right. Z and the younger millennial generation, and they're not going to find inspiration right. in products that Herbalife sells they sort of need their own products right Mm -hmm. it's sort of like not your mother's products yeah yeah (laughs) I want to hold on to that because I want to get back to that um but I want to briefly talk about an experiment you ran uh with Mm -hmm. Facebook ads I I think it's fascinating if you could share something about that yeah um so my goal with that experiment was really to see if a lot of the statistics that I read about were true so what I did was that I ran a four-week experiment, which granted was, was really short, um, but the hypothesis was sort of to see if it was actually cheaper to acquire users that belong to the hyperculture Latinx community as opposed to their white counterpart. And so what I did is I created this fake sunscreen company and I ran Facebook ads against two audiences. One of the audience is what I call your basic white girl, um, which you can imagine what that is. Um, And don't get me wrong. It's like an audience that's highly coveted by a bunch of direct-to-consumer startups. And then the other audience was 
sort of um, your hypercultural Latinx community audience. Both are within the same age range, but the hypercultural audience was definitely more, um, you know, in different geographies and um, their interests were different, their music tastes and um, this sort of interest and categories that they had were different. And so I ran those two ads uh, or I ran several ads against those two audiences. And as it turns out, based on like my short experiment, which you can poke a million holes at, um, is that it really is significantly cheaper to acquire users. And well, for me, it wasn't really about acquiring users. It was about like um, the metric that I was really measuring against was a click-through rate. So people that went to the fake website that I created. And um, it was interesting because some people even inputted their emails and it was like, a, a, like a janky product that I created on Photoshop. <laughs> yeah. No, that's awesome. Actually, you're really good at, at uh, motivating people to buy products because in one article you mentioned Habit, uh, the mm -hmm. sunscreen, I just put it in order for that. I was like, this is oh something I've God. been looking for. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. Full disclosure, we are an investor in them. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, I love Ty, the founder. I'm obviously biased, but you know, that was the inspiration behind creating like the fake ad. I basically wanted to create that same product. Um, and with Ty and Habit, we've been working a lot together around um, underserved audiences. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of like me testing out my my, my hypothesis on like one of our real portfolio companies, which is pretty exciting to see. Yeah, well, it worked for this data point, so that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, turning back to, um, you mentioned uh, the, um, the social army of social guides. And that, that ties into what you said about kind of what are the opportunities for startups. And I believe you said that startups are really uh, primed to be able to uh, meet this population, meet the demands of this population. Can you share more about uh, your thoughts on that? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think before I talk about that, one mm -hmm. thing that's probably more important than that is yeah. the founder and the founding team. And that's mm -hmm. true, not just of this type of startup, but any type of startup that I look at. And I mentioned that because I do think having shared lived experiences for the founders to have shared lived experiences as the audience they're targeting, especially as it relates to consumer startups is really important. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not trying to say, oh, you have to be Latino to start a startup for Latinos. Um, but what I am trying to say is you need to have some shared life experiences that relate to those of someone that grew up in a bicultural society that is you know, 100% Hispanic and 100% American and sort of like what that means in terms of like this pseudo culture that they create growing up. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's really important. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, as it relates to your question and like the army of social guides, um, I think um, it, it's really important to think about are these real pain points that you're solving? Because I think sometimes it's easy to say um, oh, I'm just going to create um, Glossier for Hispanics. People have done that. I, I see why, but I'm just throwing it as an example that like it's really, really important to think about uh, does this audience actually need uh, a solution for themselves? Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example. Um, we also just invested in another company called Suma Wealth, and they're really targeting fintech for Hispanics mm -hmm. or for Latinos in the United States. So I absolutely see why, as it relates to fintech, 
Hispanics in the U.S. need their own solutions. Why? Because growing up, um, for the large part, we aren't educated in terms of stocks, investing. Our society is very much not based on savings, right? Mm. Um, we basically spend what we have. And that's a really big problem because that just means the wealth gap is bigger and bigger, which is no good. Um, so, like, I want to see something like that, right? Uh, so, sorry, I'm going in many no, directions no, here. But what I'm trying to say is um, I just want to make sure that the problem is a real problem mm-hmm. for that audience that they're going after. Yeah. Not just like mattresses for Hispanics, right? Because then I would say, well, why do they need different mattresses? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think you're so right about, you know, having the awareness, having some sort of way to connect, even if you don't directly identify with a particular target population is, you know, very possible to get encapsulate and and, and relate. Uh, so I, I think yeah. that's a great point. Um, so yeah, diving more into kind of the startup perspective, um, I think you've also recommended kind of a platform approach or mm-hmm. have discussed that. Could you share uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, so the platform approach, and I'm talking about consumer startups here, is a way to uh, become a really big business, right? Like oftentimes, one thing I think about when I uh, deal with in startups is, um, is this a venture backable startup? A lot of times the answer is no, and there's nothing wrong with that. And that just means that that founder or founders can probably build a really nice business and life for themselves going the non-venture route. Now for those founders that do want to build a venture backable business, it's really important to think about how do I become, not to sound cheesy, but how do I become a billion dollar business? And I think sometimes the answer is this platform play. And what that really means is, can you share synergies and leverage what you're best at across an umbrella of brands or an umbrella of different products that you're selling? And you can think about this um, either horizontally or vertically. So horizontally is when you're selling a bunch of different products to sort of the same audience mm-hmm. or vertically is when you sell um sorry I, I got this confused horizontally is where you sell you know kind of like think about horizontally a bunch of different products yeah. different audiences and then vertically is um more of like the glossy approach where you're going to sell a bunch of different products to the same millennial audience it honestly like it start off, it, it it begins to feel more private equity like um but you'd be surprised how many investors are now interested in more of those plays. Yeah, I think there's plenty of past examples that have shown that they can become venture backable. Yeah, no, I'm really excited to see kind of how these startups in this space kind of grow and, and, and take advantage of, of yeah. the approach. It's definitely a really nice solution for consumer startups that have realized it's really hard to become a billion dollar business. So far, we've talked about kind of startups and how they can uh create solutions and meet pain points for the hyperculture Latinx. Can you talk more about on the investor side and of how to uh, either recognize uh, when uh, a team is really hitting a pain point or uh, as far as working with teams that are more diverse or look or trying to tackle problems that may not be immediately uh, apparent to an investor? Yeah. If I'm understanding the question correctly, I think that just as it is really important to have diverse 
founders and, you know, a diverse team as a startup, it's equally important to have that on the investor side. And, you know, I've talked about this thesis to a lot of founders, but I've also talked about it with a lot of investors and it's crazy who gets it and who doesn't. And like, I'm sure you can imagine some of the the conversations and like the pushback that I've gotten around this, but I, I do think it's one of those theses that not everyone gets and that's okay, right? If you're a startup and a founder that is going after this, you kind of have to find your squad and like find the people that do believe in you and that are gonna back you, not just financially, but like in terms of all the other stuff that you need as a founder um, and really be there when when you need it. Yeah, but, but, I, but I do think that Traditionally speaking, you know, less than 1% of venture dollars go into, less than 2% go into female founders, less than 1% go into female founders of color. And so with those very drastic statistics, you can see why a lot of these solutions aren't being funded. Even if they do exist out there, um, it is more difficult for them to be funded. Um, But that's why I think it's really important to have diversity across the board. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely the good news is there's a lot of conversation going on right. around this. And there's a lot of organizations popping up that are trying to better this statistic. Um, so, you know, we'll see if it's all conversation or, or if it actually moves into action in the coming right. months and years. Right. Absolutely. That's that's also what I'm uh, looking forward to seeing kind of after <laughs> it's been a 2020 has been. 2020. So I'm excited to see as we take steps and uh, are able to uh, not necessarily recover, but come back to some sense of of stable ground after this year, what will really uh, last. Um, Yeah, absolutely. This year, uh, no one could have predicted it. (laughs) Hey, everyone. I want to take a moment to thank you for listening to Vcedia. I'm excited to connect with others hungry to build a better future. If you share the vision, I'd love to hear from you. For guest and partnership inquiries, send an email to hello at vcedia.com or DM on Twitter at the underscore vcedia. Now back to our conversation. Ilse was just about to share key advice for founders and advice on deciding to pursue an idea. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just really important as founders to stay true to what you want to do and motivated by your idea and if you're not excited about it when you wake up in the morning then that just probably means that's not what you should be doing and that's perfectly fine I know a lot of really successful and really smart people way way smarter than me that just weren't cut out for the startup journey and I think that's okay I think the earlier you realize that the better but that being said um, you know everyone has opportunity cost and it's something that you can do and want to do at some point in your life, then I think now, if your personal situation allows you to, it might be a really good time to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's so many, uh, of course, like you said, you kind of have to weigh the costs, not for everyone, but um, I think there are a lot of great ideas that with maybe a little extra uh, spark of support or, or, or yeah, something like that. Yeah. I agree like look challenges bring up opportunities and I think right now we're going through challenging times and there's definitely startups that are going to be started now that are going to be unicorns in years to come you know kind of like with 2008 2009 and so I'm excited to see 
what those are and hopefully some of the ones I invested in. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So I, I'm very excited to see that as well. Um, great. So now I've come to the point in the show, Geek Out, where guests get a few minutes to just chit-chat, tell something that they uh, nerd or geek out about that's separate from work. So Ilse, I'm like, if you yeah. would, geek out. Yeah. So, you know, there's several answers that I have about this, but I'll start with one and then see, see where this goes. Great. This is probably the, the, <laughs> this is probably the weirdest one, but, um, so, you know, one thing that I've, for the last few years, I've been really intrigued about, um, is sort of lessons learned from, from the black market. Um, and so I'm talking about like, um, all the illicit markets that we know about, right? Like, um, the drug market and so on. And uh, I mean, I definitely know that it, they have like so many bad stuff about them and like, you know, fear being one among them and like crimes. And I'm definitely not advocating for any of that. But what I think is really interesting and like I spend a lot of my free time reading books about this and so on, is sort of like the, le- the real legal business lessons that you can learn from the, from the black market. Because I actually think there's a lot of similarities between the black market and corporations and everyday businesses that are completely legal and um, completely respectful. Um, and so, for example, um, many of us probably have heard about uh, the infamous, you know, Escobar, the Colombian drug lord. And I think what's really interesting is that, like, at one point, he sourced the majority of like cocaine into the United States, right? But um, what's actually interesting from a business standpoint is um, that he controlled his entire distribution because he didn't trust third parties, right? So if you can think about that from like a business lesson, that's really interesting. And then the other thing is he grew such an efficient distribution chain that even his competitors wanted to use him. Um, And so like he knew what his expertise was and really dominated that and then hired for the other areas that weren't as key to his business, but that um, he could outsource, right? Stuff like, um, like he, at some point he hired like American pilots to bring his um, product to the United States. Um, But yeah, there's actually this book that I'm reading right now called, um, what's it called? It's American Kingpin. And it's all about the Silk Road and that one is similar to sort of this, this, uh, you know, this not thesis, but this topic of lessons from the black market, because you're talking about like, at some point, the biggest black market in the world. And I fully recommend that book. It's full of like, weird, bizarre stories. But at the end of the day, it really focuses on the person behind it. And like, how he was able to get away with so much and really why, right. And a lot of that is because, yes, he was a criminal but he was also a business mastermind that is <laughs> awesome I yeah i don't know if you've ever gotten up. that answer but um yeah i know i think this <laughs> honestly maybe my favorite answer so far that's amazing cause i would had never thought of that connection but when you uh tell it like that it's like okay knowing your expertise outsourcing yeah. those are kind of some simple yeah. ideas that we apply and, and and it's there as well well, yeah. I'll be definitely reading that. I'll be linking that in the description yeah. as well. Yeah, and like the other interesting thing is that like legal businesses focus on maximizing profits and drug enterprises on minimizing their risks. 
And so because of that, they both have to innovate. They both have to manage risk. They both have to adapt and they both have influence. Absolutely. Oh, that's exciting. Okay. I know what I'm reading next. <laughs> yeah. So you said that was the weirdest one. Do you have another one you, you want to share? That was amazing. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess like more normal. Another thing <laughs> that I'm really interested in is, um, so I don't end on a weird note. <laughs> I'm. <laughs> yeah, so I'm really into like long distance running. And so one of the things that I've been doing more lately is um, like sort of figuring out my running optimization. And that's just like playing a lot around with like fartlicks within the running community. It's sort of like sprints and then jogs and then a combination of sprints and jogs. Um, and so it's really cool because like I'm part of like a couple Facebook running communities. And so it's really cool to see what people talk about there and post. And uh, what I find is that it's like a very engaged online community. So, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> and then the third thing that yeah. I geek out about, which is also my guilty pleasure, is yeah. The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. But that's more mainstream America. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just getting into The Bachelorette this season. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm being indoctrinated now. <laughs> It's definitely a interesting one to yeah. to be your first one. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. But no, yeah. that is so awesome at the running. I ran in high school. I, I say I say I'm a runner now, but you're more of a runner than me, so maybe that's oh, also motivation. Think, but you know what? Here's the thing. The reason I started running in middle school mm-hmm, and yeah. the reason I started running is because I sucked at every other sport. <laughs> You know, any sport that involves like any sort of ball, I suck that. And so, I can't you know, running, <laughs> running, all you needed was a pair of shoes and like practice, practice, practice. And yeah. so that's kind of what I stuck to. Oh, well, that's so awesome. Well, yeah. Ilse, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Yeah, likewise, Skylar. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and check us out on YouTube. If you're interested in being featured, or know someone who should, send us an email at hello at Visidia.com. Also, connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at the underscore Visidia for more from our guests, Visidia, and the future of inclusive investment and innovation ecosystems. You can also follow me on Twitter at Skylar Cole. Until next time.